Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Tech People, where I'm joined by Jeff Wald to talk about the future of work. Jeff is a very successful entrepreneur and best-selling author. His most recent book is called The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. He's kindly agreed to come on the show today to share his views on current work trends, the on-demand workforce, and how the future workplace looks. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. Great to be here. Oh, great. Listen, I always start, um, for the benefit of our audience, could you tell us a bit about you and your background? Sure. So Jeff Wald, I am the founder of a company called WorkMarket. WorkMarket was my fourth startup. We built, sold the company to ADP almost three years ago. Actually, it'll be three years ago uh, in a couple of days. And uh, I have finished my lockup at ADP, and now I I'm out and about in the world thinking about startup number five and talking about this book I wrote on the future of work called The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Fantastic. That's exactly what I'd like to talk to you about today because interesting space. A lot has happened over the last year um, with the pandemic and moving to remote workforce. Um, so it would be great to get your take on, you know, as a result of the pandemic, uh, how has this impacted the work environment? Well, the thing is, Ken, the impacts have been so vast and so wide-ranging and all over the place. I mean, we really don't know is the short answer. A lot of people say, oh, it's increased, you know, sped up the future of work. The future of work is now. And the answer to that question is maybe, maybe the future is now. So we've had a lot of acceleration of some trends. We will see how many of those snap back when we, God willing, soon get to a post-COVID world. There are a few things around remote work, which clearly is going to exist in a much, much higher percentage of the workforce than it did pre-pandemic. But will it be 15%, 20%? Will it go back to just above the 3% it was pre-pandemic? The short answer is we don't know. We have a lot of data on that, but on a lot of other issues as in the the acceleration of the adoption of robots and AI, the increase in on-demand workers. We don't have enough data yet, and anybody drawing conclusions thus far outside of any data or any sense of what that snapback is going to look like is foolish, in my opinion. Interesting. Could you actually, you mentioned, you know, trends. For you, I mean, what are like the current trends uh, as in today? Well, I think we would start with remote work. Okay. Remote work was a clear trend pre-pandemic. So let's rewind. 2010, 1.5% of the U.S. workforce, and most of my data and research is, is U.S. focused, although you see a lot of relatability and similar statistics in the EU, less so when we get into Asian economies for various regulatory reasons and industrial development reasons. But the EU, U.S. and the EU tend to look very, very similar in a lot of these stats. So 1.5% okay. in the U.S. in 2010. And 
Again, important here are definitions. Remote work doesn't mean one day a week I work remotely. You are not a remote worker in that context. You have a flexible work arrangement. Right. Remote work means more than 50% of the time you are not in that office, meaning the company doesn't allocate infrastructure to you, most likely. And what definitively doesn't happen is from a tax nexus standpoint, you are not considered an employment employee in that office, which is very important, certainly in the U.S. in terms of taxes. So right. 1.5% was fully qualified or defined as remote workers. Over that 10-year period from 2010 to 2020, we saw a 100% increase, went from 1.5% to 3%. That's huge in labor statistics. It only happens when we see very low numbers, like that 1.5%. And the odds of it doubling again from 3% to 6%, nobody was making that prediction from 2020 to 2030. Nobody. We would see people predicting, oh, we'll go from 3% to 4% or maybe 3 to 4.5%. And the reason people weren't making that predictions, threefold. One, the low-hanging fruit had kind of been picked there. You know, the people that could work remote, where their companies would let them, they mostly had. Problem number one. Problem number two was you had a lot of managers that had very antiquated mindsets of, no, 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 I want everybody in the office. I think presence equals productivity. I think magic happens when people are in the office. So you had that mindset that was an issue. Third were infrastructure, policies, procedures. Even if I wanted to work remotely, if my company won't allow anybody outside my four walls to access certain systems, I couldn't work remote. Even if I wanted to work remotely, and the company allowed it, but they didn't make Zoom options or team options for every single meeting, there'd be certain things that I would miss, so I couldn't be remote. Those last two, the mindset and the infrastructure, both changed in March of 2020, right? Nobody had a choice. You had to change your mindset. You had to put in place infrastructures, policies, and procedures. And because of that, at the height of the pandemic in the U.S., we saw about 40% of the workforce working remotely. Now, Keep in mind, the natural limit is 42%. 42 is the mo is the highest are all the workers that can work remotely because clearly some industries and some functions can't work remote. If you work in transportation or logistics or a lot of retail, a lot of entertainment, obviously manufacturing, you can't work remotely. So. When we get to this post-COVID world, as we are slowly easing into, and people are obviously back in their offices, we are well off the 40% of people working remote. When we look at survey data of to what company executives are saying, when we look at survey data as to what workers are saying, you start to see a nexus start to form around 8% of the U.S. workforce will work remote in a post-COVID world. Now, that 8% has two important contexts to it. One is that is out of the 42% that can work remote. So let's keep that in mind. So that's almost 20% of people that can work remote will. And two, that definition of remote work. If we had a conversation about what percent of the workforce are going to have flexible work arrangements, now I'm looking at 32 to 33% of that workforce having flexible work arrangements because this whole idea of working from home every now and again, you know, what did that mean pre-pandemic? If someone said, hey, I'm going to work from home next Friday, people are like, oh, that's great. You know, Ken's going to the beach. If you say that now, people say, oh, great, I'll see you on the 10 a.m. Zoom. There's a very different context. So I think a lot of people, most people will have flexible work arrangements. But that, in a very long answer to your question, 
is one of the most powerful trends in the world of work that we are seeing right now with very real data behind it. Very interesting. And you also mentioned about the on-demand workforce. I mean, just for the benefit of our audience, could you just expand on what you mean by that? Sure. And that's a great question, by the way, because too many conversations on the on-demand workforce happen outside of context and definitions, and Mm -hmm. people end up talking past each other. The on-demand workforce is defined as anybody doing work for your company that is not an employee of your company. So it could be a temp, it could be a freelancer, it could be a vendor. That is the on-demand workforce. So do you see, you see obviously this has been much bigger for the future, obviously not more on-demand workforce. Would that, be, would that be a correct assumption to make? It's a correct assumption with the following qualification. Bigger, but not much bigger. So again, if we dial back into history, which is always where I like to start, we see an on-demand workforce in the U.S. and in the EU somewhere between 20 and 30% of the workforce. It's very difficult to get actual statistics because it is not tracked that well. So in the U.S., pre, uh, you know, around 2010, it was, you know, at that point in time, because it, it goes up and down kind of counter-cyclically with the economic cycle, it was about 25 to 27% of the workforce. And a lot of people at that time said, oh, by 2020, 50% of the labor force is going to be on demand. And I remember thinking, that's not an intelligent projection. That's got no chance of coming true. And as we fast forward 10 years, the on-demand workforce grew slowly, grew steadily, and went from somewhere between 25 to 27% of the labor force to somewhere between 27 and 30% of the labor force. So it has grown, financially taking upwards of 3% market share from full-time workers, from employees. But over a 10-year period, that is slow and steady growth. I anticipate the same slow and steady growth over the next 10 years. We're not going to see some huge shift. A lot of people now are saying, oh, now the on-demand workforce will be 50% of the labor force by 2030. Ridiculous prediction in 2010. It's a ridiculous prediction now. We will see slow and steady growth. That is what history, that is what data, and that's how companies actually engage workers. That's what those three bodies of evidence would tell us. And, you know, what are the challenges, risks that this brings? I mean, with this on-demand, okay, it's steadily increasing, but for companies that trend? What are are the risks that you see with that? What are the challenges? Well, the risks continue to be in the on-demand workforce, the regulatory environment. The risks are not efficiency in managing that workforce, software solved that, VMS software for temps, FMS software like WorkMarket for freelancers. That's not an issue. Intellectual property and processes and institutional knowledge and all these other things, that's not a risk either. Again, software has solved that process. Improvement has solved that. The risk is regulatory, and it's regulatory on two fronts. One is the company's risk of, is somebody going to come in and say, actually, I think all those people should be your employees, and therefore you owe us all kinds of back taxes. And there's a regulatory risk for the worker, the on-demand worker, Are they going to have access to the social safety net, to the right insurance, workers' comp, and all these kinds of other things? Because in many cases, they don't. And so both sides have some risk. And in theory, these are solvable risks. They're solvable from better regulation. They're solvable from some companies offering market-based solutions to offer the right insurance products to the on-demand worker. So they're solvable and they're getting better. 
but uh, they remain very powerful risks and very powerful headwinds to the on-demand economy. And you made, just on that point, actually, you mentioned about, you know, that you could be considered an employee. Have you seen any solutions to that or how companies are managing that challenge? Great question. The short answer is yes. The solutions are to systematize and use software. So not to pick on work market, but there were companies that had a huge concern about their engagement with their freelance population. Mostly, Ken, because they didn't know how many freelancers are we using? Are we following the rules in the state of Wisconsin? Are we following the engagement protocols in Portugal? And the answer that they would get was, we don't know. We don't know how many we're working with. We don't know how many we've used. We don't know if we're using them too much. And then they could bring in the work market software and they could set up limit functions and rules In the state of Wisconsin, we do not want to use somebody more than 20 hours a week. In Portugal, we don't want to send anybody more than 35 assignments per year. And boom, those rules are being followed. And so that is a way that companies get to kind of bend that labor equation. They get to use software to really enforce rules, and it allows them to start using freelancers not only more, but more confidently. Do you think that's a good thing to start using more? So I would argue that it is certainly a good thing. It allows companies to be more flexible. We certainly know that in almost all contexts, evolutionarily, by the way, not just from a business standpoint, flexibility is a unbelievably powerful characteristic for much better outcomes. So do I think it's better for companies? 100%. Do I think it's better for workers? In most, most, most cases, yes. You know, the on-demand worker on average makes more than the employed worker. The on-demand worker has more flexibility. The on-demand worker has more choice. And so in most cases, it is a positive for both parties. I certainly accept that in some cases, it is not positive. For some workers, it's some parts of the value chain, at some parts of the skill set spectrum. It is not positive. But for most workers, it is positive, which is why most workers, by the way, would not, in the on-demand economy, would not take a full job if offered. They want to remain an on-demand worker. Yes, that's true. But I suppose at that point, I mean, they chose to be on-demand workers, I suppose, and they wanted to be, and they're happy to take that risk. I suppose there's a lot of people that don't want that. Very true. Very, very true. Would they be forced on that route, I wonder, with the changing environment? And then the the risk of not having a job, I suppose, a concern of not being able to feed the family, not being paid every month. You don't work, you don't get paid. That is very true, but most people do choose this type of work. But to your point, Ken, without question, people that don't choose it and want that stability of a full-time job but are working in an on-demand capacity because they can't get a full-time job, clearly that is not a positive for them or their families. Timmy, uh, sorry to jump now, but um, I just want to mention briefly, you know, just talking about your book, also the end, and now we've been talking about the on-demand workers, but your book, which is The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Could you just give us a little bit more insight into that? Um, sure. Always happy to talk about the book. <laughs> so I'll tell you this. It took me seven years to write this book. And that is not because I'm an amazing writer and was spending seven years doing hard research. I did a lot of research, and I'm very proud of the book, 
but it took me seven years because writing a book is really hard, especially when you're in the midst of building a, building a startup. So the unfor- uh, you know the fortunate sale to ADP gave me the opportunity to finish the book. And I started writing the book seven years ago because I just got very frustrated, Ken, with people that make predictions about the future of work outside of bodies of evidence. And in quite frankly, I'm annoyed with people that make any statement outside bodies of evidence in any context. But within the future of work, we have three very powerful bodies of evidence. We have the history of work. We have how companies and workers have come together through all sorts of situations to produce goods and services to the benefit of society. We know these things. We can study them and we can see what kind of lessons from history apply to present day or future context. We have data. We have all kinds of data and data trends and patterns, and we can use that data to make predictions. And then we have how companies actually engage workers. A lot of people think, oh, well, companies just want to use the cheapest worker, and they think that the labor resource planning meetings kind of happen like this. The CEO walks in and says, all right, so let's use the cheapest workers and screw workers in every chance we get. Agreed? Meeting adjourned. Shockingly, that is not actually how companies engage workers. Yeah, I know. It's a surprise. And so understanding those three bodies of evidence, studying them, talking to the people that are in there, making the decisions about their labor resource planning, going and finding every data source and looking at the data patterns and trends, and researching and studying the history of work. Those are three things that we do in the book, and we use that foundation to make thoughtful, I would argue, high probability predictions on the near term and on the medium term future of work. In the long term, everything's off the table. Nobody knows anything in the long term. But in the near term and the medium term, we can be much more thoughtful. And and that's why I wrote the book. And that's the framework I tried to set up. And that's why I've made the predictions that I've made. And based on what's happened in the last year, has that changed your mindset uh, based on what you've written in the book much? Really, really good question. Again, the short answer is, is I don't know. And anybody, again, that says, oh, well, everything's changed because of this. Yes, all, everything has changed, but we don't know how it's changed. And to extrapolate data from 2020 would be massively silly because the data was all over the place and it was unprecedented and it moved so quickly one way and then so quickly back the other. We don't know. I will have a better sense in 21 if the long-term trends of slow and steady increases of on-demand work, of slow and steady increases in the use of robots and AI, of no net job losses due to robots and AI, and the slow movement of labor from one area of the economy to another, if that and a host of other trends continue along their predicted paths, or if we've had substantive change. Remote work, we've had substantive change. That one I am sure of. Because outside of a pandemic forcing the change of mindset and outside of a pandemic forcing infrastructure, policies, and procedures to happen, we would not have had the massive increase in remote and flexible work. That one I'm sure of. The others, TBD. You mentioned there, I mean, you know, robots, AI. Could you give us maybe some insights in, you know, how the future looks for you in terms of the workplace? Well, when we look at history, we look at data, when we look at how companies engage workers. We see many times where huge technology innovations have caused substantive displacement of jobs and job functions. We have seen throughout history many, many times people say, oh my gosh, 
all the jobs are going to be lost and society is going to crumble. And every time we see ever more jobs being created, people working fewer hours, and those fewer hours producing a higher standard of living. Those are some very clear patterns from a data and a trend standpoint from the history of work. So when we look to the robots and AI, are there reasons to think that this time is different? Yeah, there are a few. This change will happen much faster than previous changes. This change will happen on a much more global scale. This change will happen potentially with a higher vector of productivity increases than we've seen in the past. And that might change the equations of speeds of jobs, displacement, and things like that. So do I think about those things? Yes. Have I taken those into account? Of course. And I still believe that over the next 20 years, we will lose 10 to 15% of jobs. I believe that that will occur. We can walk through the math in great detail if you'd like. But I also believe that more jobs will be created. That is a very clear trend from the history of work to a very clear trend from the data patterns as we have now. So I don't think, oh my gosh, all the jobs are going to go. I don't think that they will go that quickly. And I do think that we will create ever more jobs. So it's more, I think, upscaling also, no? I mean, people that were in jobs have a goal will upscale, obviously, to I don't know, maybe a tech job or something different. So that, though, Ken, is the big challenge. The thing that concerns me about the future of work is not the robots taking our jobs. It's not robots launching a war on humanity. Those, I think, are incredibly low probability to almost no probability. The thing that concerns me is these upwards of 25 million workers in the United States, upwards of 30 million workers in the EU, will need to be retrained. Now, that's over a 20-year period, and they will need to move from industries that are dying, industries like retail and some logistics and transportation and some professional services industries, those jobs in those industries are going to be destroyed. We'll need to move them to jobs in healthcare and jobs in customer support and service and jobs in technology that are growing. And I will tell you that when we look historically, societies have not done this well. They've actually done it incredibly poorly. And those workers are left behind and they're increased in terms of depression and increased in crime and increases in their voting, you know, their voting patterns for populism and nationalism. Like there are a lot of very negative implications, both for the country and for those workers and their families. And we can do better. We must do better. And so it is something that concerns me, but I am always hopeful as to we might just do it better this time. Well, very interesting. I hope so too, because we need all those people, I'll be honest, especially in the technology space where we really lack in terms of developers and people working in all different areas of technology so we could do with our upskilling. Of course. But uh, interesting times ahead. Listen, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the chat and hopefully we'll get you on again and assess things again maybe the end of the year or later in the year. I would very much look forward to it. In the meantime, stay safe, be well, and I will look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Jeff. Well, one last point, Jeff. Oh, of course. If people to get in touch with you, I mean, what is the best way? You know, it's funny. The only place in the world where I go by Jeffrey is on Twitter because I couldn't get at Jeff Wald, so it's at Jeffrey Wald. LinkedIn is uh, actually my social network of choice, and the book is available uh, on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. 
Fantastic. And just for the benefit of the audience, the name of the book is The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations with Jeff Wald. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.